Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Uh, we are taking a bit of a U-turn in our theological equipping class. I was supposed to teach a couple weeks ago, but I decided to throw up a whole bunch instead. So Zach covered for me uh, and talked about Thomas Aquinas. So last week, we're, we're getting close to the Reformation, and everyone's like, yes, finally, no more Catholics. We're Protestant after all. And then, sorry, we're going to go back 200 years to around the 10th, 11th century and study Anselm, and then next week, we'll study the rumblings of reform when we start to really look at, you know, the rumblings that will lead to the Reformation. But today, we're going to talk about uh, one of the main figures of the Middle Ages, really one of the main figures of the church, which is Saint Anselm. So... He is a man that's most known, uh, not for his biography, he's not most known for uh, living a particularly extraordinary life, but he's most known for his thought, his theology. So we're going to go through his life chronologically, but uh, we're going to mainly focus, spend most of our time unpacking some of his main theological ideas that have massively influenced the church. So Anselm, there he is, there's a picture of him, he likes uh, profile paintings, you know, the guy painting this portrait was like, look at me, we can't see your whole face, he's like, no, sideways, I look way cooler, so there he is, looks like a very nice guy, nice hairdo, uh, Anselm, we don't know a whole much uh, about his early life, we know he was uh, born to really, really wealthy parents, his father was a really uh, wealthy landover, uh, landowner, they lived in Aosta, Italy, uh, which is a beautiful region in the Alps, and he went somewhat wayward, again, we don't know a whole lot of details, details, but in his teenage years, he was very rebellious. He was, you know, on whatever the medieval version of Snapchat was back in the day, and very rebellious. Uh, but after his mother's death around the age of 22, he leaves uh, Italy and wanders kind of through France, and he eventually ends up in the Normandy region, realizing he wants to study. He wants to study. So what he does is he enters a cathedral school at Beck in Normandy, Normandy, France. So uh, th there aren't universities yet. Those are coming very soon. In fact, Anselm's going to lay a lot of the foundation that will eventually lead to universities. But what they have is cathedral schools, as they were called. Uh, what you would do is you would essentially find someone that you wanted to study under, kind of like if you're getting your PhD today, and you would say, I want to go to study under that person. Uh, what school does he teach at? And that's kind of how uh, Anselm ended up in Beck. He wants to study under a man named Lanfranc, or Lanfranc, if you're from the South. Uh, but at the age of 25, he enters this school in Beck. That's about 900 years before we stormed the beaches, right, in 44, uh, in Normandy. And the school's slightly different. Most cathedral schools in that day train people for the monastic life. Uh, people who aren't going to be priests but are going to be monks, that's the, what most of the cathedral schools were for. But Beck, this school is a bit unique in which it trained also uh, sons of nobility, Rich kids also got to go that necessarily weren't going straight into the monastic life. And so that's how Anselm kind of enters at first. He doesn't take uh, immediate monastic vows, but he's you know, a son of rich landowners. So he enters into the school. He's going to spend 30 years of his life there. The majority of his life is going to be spent in this school in Normandy. But again, like I said, he wants to study under Lanfranc. There he is holding a rock of some sort, staring at it, contemplating it. Uh, Lanfranc was uh, a big name in his day. Something that's happening that we'll talk about a lot this morning in Anselm's time is there's this debate between faith and reason. How do faith and reason relate to one another. Faith meaning, you know, do we just cite biblical texts? You know, if we, what we believe, here's, here's the verses that go to it. Do we just cite the early church fathers, right? Do we just, you know, 
This is what we believe because these other things say so. Or reason, do we think, do we use logic, do we explore uh, why we believe what we believe, things like that. And so there's this reason, what is the relationship between the two? Are they mutually exclusive? Do we only do philosophy? Do we only do logic and just, you know, kind of like pretend that we're atheists and then try and prove God? Or do we say, this is what the Bible says, this is what my pastor says, and we just do faith. Uh, And Lanfranc is one of the influential voices at the beginning of this debate that's gonna say we do both. These two things are not mutually exclusive in any sense. We don't just say, here's what the Bible says, so I believe it because the Bible says it. Here's what the early church fathers say, so we just kind of you know, put our sources next to our arguments. I believe this because Augustine said so, and Ephesians says so, and things like that. We also use our minds, which by the way, are given to us by God. They're, they're a tool to actually explore that faith. So don't just blindly have faith. God's actually give us, given us a mind, given us reason to explore that very faith. And so Lanfranc's uh, kind of laboring uh, to, to really say, God is the one who gave you a brain. God is the one who gave you the ability to think. He doesn't say, here's a brain, now don't use it to think deeply about me. Don't use it to explore theology and things like that. In fact, it's a tool to think about me deeply. Take, for instance, Psalm 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So whoever this Psalm 1 man is, he doesn't just read the Bible and say, great, close it. He meditates on it. He thinks deeply about it day and night. So Lanfranc would say, that's what we're meant to do. Faith and reason aren't opposed. They're, in fact, complementary to one another. And so Anselm's going to study under him. He's going to be his best student. It's not going to take long for people to realize that Anselm is the most brilliant mind in that school. Uh, and he's going to even you know, surpass the brilliance of his great teacher. And he, in fact, is going to be kind of the defining voice early on. On in, in this debate between faith and reason. So Anselm, just uh, understand his method. Let me move this. So we have faith and reason. Forgive my handwriting. I think Zach's might be a little bit worse, but we'll see. So faith, forgive my spelling. I'm also dyslexic. Reason. How do these two relate? Anselm is gonna develop kind of a method that's best summarized as faith-seeking understanding. So he's gonna say, kind of like Lanfranc, these aren't opposed, they're actually uh, complementary. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna say, within the realm of faith, we carve out a space for reason. I'm gonna write this real small so no one can see it. So within the realm of faith, we carve out a space for reason to kind of explore the faith that we already believe. So uh, faith-seeking understanding is this idea of, uh, we don't, we're, not, we're not trying to prove doctrine. Again, there's really no atheists in the 10th century. You're either a Christian or a Muslim or a pagan, but you all believe in some sort of God. So we are, we are post-enlightenment. So we just are assuming any sort of argument, any sort of debate, any sort of proof is meant to say, hey, you who don't believe there is a God, here's probably why a God exists. Come over to Christianity. That is not the debate that they're having in that day. Rather, what Anselm is saying is reason, logic, is a way for us to deepen our faith. It's actually meant for believers to say, you already have faith. We start with faith and we use logic. We use our brains, again, as these tools to actually deepen our faith and to grow our worship. Here's a quote here by Anselm. 
uh, prayer, actually. I do not seek, Lord, to reach your heights, for my intellect is all as nothing compared to them. But I seek in some way to understand your truth, which my heart believes and loves. I do not seek to understand in order to believe. Rather, I believe in order to understand. So that's the, the famous quote. If you see Anselm's uh, name, that quote is typically attached to it. I believe so that I may understand. This is very uh, Augustine sounding. He's a big student of Augustine. Augustine said uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before, unless you believe, you will not be able to understand. So that's, that's kind of how he develops this idea. We start with faith, we start with belief, but then we use the tools of logic, we use the tools of reason, we use the tools of our mind, the brain that God has given us to explore that faith, to deepen it, to give us greater confidence in it, to, to know our God more, right? So in a sense, he would say, God is the one, again, who's given you this brain so that you might search out him, so that you might think about the implications of your Christian theology. Christians should be logical thinkers. Uh, Zach's book that we've talked about because it just came out is, is helpful because it's, 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 we are living in a day where we're massively drifting away from this idea that we analyze ideas. We're not giant sponges that just absorb everything that comes at us. Christians should be logical thinkers, not just to fight off the, the false narratives of the world, although that's a main reason, but even to deepen our devotion to God. You want to fall in love with God more. Study your inexhaustible God. That is how you set your heart on fire. We'll talk about this kind of throughout the rest of the morning, but Anselm, there is absolutely no division between the head and the heart. In fact, he would say, you want to set your heart on fire, you study. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, I don't have it written down, so I might might not quote exactly, but he essentially says, those who find that nothing happens when they're reading devotional books would discover that their heart soars when they're working through a bit of theology with a pencil in their hand and a pipe in their teeth, right? So this idea that, that is typically what we do, we'll study, and then when it gets difficult, we get tired, we get exhausted, and we say, okay, where's that, you know, 365 words of wisdoms book in Mardell or whatever? What's the one paragraph uh, devotion book that's just going to basically say, you know, Jesus says you're pretty and stuff like that, uh, versus doing the deep work of studying and falling in love with your inexhaustible God. You want to have less anxiety. You want to have greater confidence that your Lord is sovereign overall. Dive deep into that doctrine. Lose sleep over it, that your God is absolutely in control of everything. Right, the doctrines I love most are the ones that I have, have, I've lost sleep at night, thinking, how could this be? And then finally, the breakthrough comes. But that's, that's Anselm's argument. We use reason to explore the faith that we already believe. We're not atheists trying to become Christians. We're already Christians, and we use our brains, we use our gifts, we use logic to think deeply about uh, what we already believe. So an example would be, when you come to a place in the scriptures that bother you, you don't make one of two errors. You don't say, well, I don't like this, but the Bible says it, so I guess it must be, right? Just saying, well, I guess I'll just have faith. It's horrible, and I don't really like it, but I guess God said it. Or we don't say, well, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't really measure up to modern standards of morality, things like that, so the Bible must be true. You see those two errors? We see those all the time. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, big critiques that John Calvin made of uh, the Catholic Church in the Reformation is that they have implicit faith they don't actually believe what they believe. They'll just say, you know, well, the church says this, right? They just appeal to sources and they don't actually thank themselves. Uh, how many of us have ever heard, you know, for me, I heard all the time growing up, well, the pastor says this, so it must be true, 
right? Evangelicals do it as well. We're just applying to faith. We're not using reason to say, why? Why is it this way? So Anselm would say, don't make that mistake. Don't just say, well, the Bible says I don't like it, but I guess I have to believe it. And then don't do the other. Don't just say, well, I'm rejecting it because I don't like it. Rather, ask that hard question of why? Why has God revealed this to us this way? Why has God designed it this way? If we know he's infinitely good, he's infinitely perfect, he's infinitely loving, then there must be an infinitely good way of why he's wired it this way. I'm, I'm gonna assume that I'm the one that's at fault, that I can't understand that infinitely holy God. So I'm diving deep into why. We're using reason logic to search that out until we see where our God is being good and where that falls short. If we can't really grasp where he's being good and we can't understand it in our own minds, that's when we bow the knee and worship, worship the mystery. Here's what Anselm says about this. By always adhering to the same faith without hesitation, by loving it, by humbly living according to it, a Christian ought to argue how they are insomuch as one can look for reason. If one can understand, he should thank God. If one cannot understand, one should simply bow one's head in veneration rather than sound off trumpets. So we search out, we believe, we search out why God has revealed it this way. And we, when we understand it, we thank God that he's been so gracious to us and we can't understand it. Rather than sounding off trumpets and saying, well, the Bible must be false, God must be a liar, things like that, rather bow the head in veneration. This sounds exactly like Cyril of Alexandria, Athanasius of Alexandria, men we talked about uh, months ago now who in, in the Trinitarian debate said, when you come to something that is so central to the gospel, but it surpasses your ability to understand because it's a divine mystery, don't minimize the mystery. Don't say, well, that must not be right. Rather, say the truth anyway and let the mystery be adored in silence. Anselm is having that same kind of humble spirit. So we start with faith and we explore that faith with reason, right? Just because you don't understand something doesn't make it wrong. It just means we can't fully comprehend uh, our, our infinite God. I, uh, this is just my two cents. I think this is the best example of the, the faith and reason relationship. They're not two separate spheres that are just complementary. Rather, we believe because our God is the ultimate authority, the scriptures are the ultimate authority, but we use the gift of logic, the gifts of our intellect, the gifts of our brain that God has given us to search out why God has written it that way. Look at the Psalms, for example. How many psalmists do you see who know God is king, who know God is absolutely in control? They know all these things, yet they'll say things like, where are you? Why have you completely abandoned me? Why are, you, why are my enemies surrounding me? And yet they end with that, but I do not doubt your love. I do not doubt your goodness, right? You see that wrestle there that's in the scriptures, almost as if God is saying, do this. This is how I want you to relate to me. When your faith falls short, wrestle with these things. Don't deny your faith, but wrestle as to why I've done it this way. And again, the goal here, this is so important to understand. The goal is to deepen your faith. The goal of this isn't to just ivory tower, think about big things, you know, say these big words that no one understands except the ivory tower scholars. The goal is worship. The goal is for your infinite God to be more beautiful to you, to be more close to you, for your faith's roots actually to grow deeper. That is Anselm's goal in all of this. So that's Anselm's approach, faith-seeking understanding. When we look at his, we'll look at three major works this morning. When we do, we'll see this applied to all three of those works. After him, they're going to kind of get separated. Uh, the, the faith reason debate 
uh, people will kind of continue with his method, but then eventually they're going to get separated as two separate spheres uh, where, you know, reason, uh, there's some writers that will say, yes, we believe the Bible, but let's just for fun kind of see how far we can get just with reason. Can we prove God just with reason, which is going to eventually lead to the enlightenment where guys are going to say, that's great. Okay, we don't need faith anymore. Let's just do reason. That's where we get kind of our modern understanding of atheism, things like that, that kind of result from the enlightenment. But Anselm is very much faith-seeking understanding. We start with the scriptures, we start with God's revelation, and we use the gifts of logic, of thinking deeply about him to explore what we already believe. At no point do we stop believing. Rather, we're exploring what we already believe. So he joins the school, he's studying under Lanfranc, and then about a year after entering the school, he takes monastic vows at 27. He decides, I don't just want to be educated, I actually want to become a monk. And again, this is so important for understanding Anselm. His identity is one of a monk. Most of his writings are going to be a combination of incredible monastic devotion, a devotion to prayer, devotion to all these different things, uh, devotion to the Lord, and uh, rigorous, rigorous theological thinking. Again, they're not mutually exclusive. Head and heart go hand in hand with him. He wants his logic to allow him to dive deeply into uh, his love for the Lord. So in fact, his first writings are uh, prayers and meditations. In his day, uh, most writings uh, on prayer and most writings on meditation were used for liturgical worship, were used for kind of the Sunday service, if you will. Anselm's actually going to bring a pretty big shift where uh, meditations and prayers start to be written for personal devotion, start to deepen one's individual faith. Uh, And so... He's there, he's uh, joined the school, and now he's joined the monastic uh, school within uh, the school of Beck and begins, yes, deepening his faith, meditations, prayers. Uh, He's going to be highly, highly influential in that regard, kind of private devotion. Uh, A couple historical events that are important. You see intimidating-looking French William the Conqueror there. No one's ever seen a mustache more intimidating than that guy. Uh, William the Conqueror conquers England. Uh, in the famous Battle of Hastings, it's the only time England's ever been successfully conquered. Uh, it's, it's, the English and the French hate each other. Here's some of the history behind that. Uh, so William the Conqueror from Normandy, William of Normandy, he gives him you know, a nice, uh, he promotes his name after he conquers. And he is going to now, ruling over England, draw uh, from Normandy. He wants, you know, the church and the state are very inseparably linked at this point. So William of Normandy says, I don't want all these Brits running my you know, church and things like that. He's going to get some French people from Normandy and promote them uh, to England. And so he's going to get Lanfranc, uh, Anselm's leader, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury in uh, 1070 AD. So he's gone from the school. Uh, Normandy and uh, Canterbury are really close. By the way, they're just separated by that English channel. And so Lanfranc leaves the school. And around that time, Anselm begins to kind of rise through the ranks of the school. He becomes the prior, just a leader in the school at the age of 30. He's around my age, a year older than me. Uh, and as a young man, he's becoming more and more well-known. His fame is spreading. His students are actually the one who kind of make him more famous. He's just kind of hanging out there with those guys and writing these meditations, and they're benefiting from it. And his students are the ones who really start to say, hey, you should publish this stuff. You should send this stuff out uh, to a wider audience. This is actually really helpful for the church. That's actually, I don't know if you know this, uh, we would not have most of J.R.R. Tolkien's writings had C.S. Lewis, his close friend, say, hey, you should 
publish this stuff. He was kind of just writing for his kids and for himself to kind of decompress, you know, write Lord of the Rings to decompress from your job at Oxford. Uh, and Lewis was the first one to say, hey, this is, this is really great. You should publish these things. So we can thank Lewis for that. But that's kind of what his students do uh, with him as well, right? Publish this stuff. So his reputation is growing. And then at 45, he becomes the head of the school at Beck. He becomes the abbot. That's fairly young to become the head of a, a really well-known School. So as he, uh, again, becomes the head of the school, he begins to rub shoulders with influential people. He gets involved in political matters. He visits England. He kind of wins over William the Conqueror. Again, that just dashing mustachioed man up there at the top begins to like Anselm. Uh, that's going to prove problematic for him in the future. He is a really... He's not a great politician, we'll see towards the end of his life, but he's growing in fame, he's living the good life at Beck, uh, writing all these things, and it's around that time when he writes one of his first, uh, the first of his three major works uh, called the Monologion, the monologue. Uh, And again, this is an attempt by him, he's been doing this with the other monks, and again, they encourage him to write for a wider audience, this is an attempt by him to meditate on his, uh, the essence of the Trinitarian God. Uh, to think deeper about, again, the Trinitarian God that he already believes in. So again, remember, faith-seeking understanding. He already believes in the Trinity. He already believes God exists. And now he wants to meditate on the essence of God. He wants to meditate on the essence of the Trinity with the goal of deepening his love for the Lord. Again, remember, he's a monk. He wants to deepen his love for the, love for the Lord. He, want, he doesn't want to prove to atheists that uh, the God of the Trinity exists. Rather, he wants to deepen the devotion of those who already believe in the Trinitarian God. So, monologion, kind of a summary of it. I've written there. He starts again with this idea that God exists and he wants to meditate on that existence. And so, he, he kind of has this latter approach. He says, everybody has an idea of something that is good whether it be food or friendship or whatever, everyone has an idea of something that is good, and therefore everyone has an idea of something that is better. Right? So you have good, I like this food, but that food is better. I have this you know, close friendship, but you know, the love of a family member is better. So we have this kind of increasing idea of goodness until finally we must get to something that is the supreme good. We must eventually get to the top rung of the ladder and get to what is best. And he claims, therefore, the best, the standard of all goodness must be God. Right, the goodness from which all other goodness is derived. This is what he says. Of all the things that exist, there is of one nature that is supreme. It alone is self-sufficient in its eternal happiness. Yet through its all-powerful goodness, it creates and gives to all other things their very existence and goodness. Or to say it another way, everybody knows, you know, everybody has something they enjoy. They have this idea of what's good. And that is simply a reflection of the one who is ultimate good. You see that kind of ladder approach, good, better, best. God must be the best. He's meditating upon this idea of God's existence and how there's even that kind of stamp on humanity where we can just think about something that we like and that will eventually lead us to the ultimate good, the standard of goodness. Now, he is very, very clear and clarifies God does not submit to some standard of goodness, right? He wouldn't be God if there was something higher than him that he submitted to. God is goodness personified, right? You are good and all you do is good is is what we sing on Sunday mornings, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, right? There's not a standard of truth that is above me. I am truth. I am good. We say God is love, right? He is goodness and all other things are simply an extension of his nature. He makes that important clarification. God is simply goodness itself. And then he ends the monologue on by uh, meditating on God's Trinitarian nature, 
uh, don't freak out at this, okay? Just, just follow me, I'll explain some stuff. So he says, uh, you know, if God is goodness personified, that's his nature, and all other good is derived from him, uh, his nature is also Father, Son, and Spirit, right? He's Trinitarian, and therefore, there must be some sort of footprint, there must be some sort of stamp of his Trinitarian nature on his creation. And he kind of follows examples that Augustine gave us in his famous work, uh, De Trinitate, where he says, uh, you know, every human is a self, uh, but there are different ways in which our self is expressed, rather our mind, our knowledge, and our love, right? Or our memory, our will, and our understanding, right? This is almost identically following Augustine. Now, don't forget that. You've probably heard us, if you were here at the beginning of the semester, yell at you, don't do Trinitarian analogies. Don't say God is ice, water, steam, but, you know, one thing. Don't say God is like an egg, shell, yellow part, and white clear part, right? Three, but one egg, right? That's modalism and partialism and all of those are heresies. That is not what Augustine was doing when he was giving these examples and that's not what Anselm are doing. They are not saying, here's some analogies for, to understand the Trinity. Rather, what they're saying is, here is some sort of footprint where three in one you see intertwined. Right, they're not saying, here's an analogy to understand the Trinity. They're, they're simply saying, you know, God, our creator, is again leaving this footprint on creation of his Trinitarian nature that we might deepen our love for him. Again, though your eyes might be crossing at this, I'm like, okay, that's enough from Anselm. Can we stop at 925? Again, his goal here is to deepen, the worship, deepen his own devotion to God, deepen his own worship of God, deepen the worship of everyone who's reading these works. Uh, but, so this is his first major work. It will be the least famous of his kind of three major works, mainly because everything he says, Augustine already said. Uh, so people are like, great, should we read this? And people are probably like, nah. Augustine said everything and more, and he said it better. So it doesn't really uh, catch a whole lot of steam. But right after that, a year later, he writes a sequel. You guys were like, please, more, more of this. So he, write, he heard your cries a thousand years ago. And so he writes a sequel that will be way more famous called the Proslogion, or in Latin, the Discourse. So the first is a monologue. Now the second one is going to be uh, a discourse. And in fact, this entire work is going to be a prayer. So again, he wants to meditate on God's essence. And this time he's going to kind of end, it's going to culminate in what uh, is called the ontological argument or the ontological proof of God's existence. You probably heard us talk about this several times. We have a whole teaching on it when we were going through apologetics. Uh, we have uh, a blog on it, I think called Unicorns and the Ontological Argument or something like that. Zach wrote it. Uh, Zach loves unicorns, fun fact. Uh, so... We've talked about this quite a bit, but again, so he wants to write a sequel to this idea and his method, faith-seeking understanding. He already believes God exists. He's not doing, hey, atheists, let me prove to you God exists. He's saying, hey, Christians, let's think deeply about God and let's let our hearts explode in worship. So instead uh, of doing the kind of latter approach here, he's gonna say, everyone already has an idea of God simply by uh, understand, or everyone can understand God exists simply by thinking of him. So uh, look at that. I have a couple quotes. Well, I have several quotes for you uh, by Anselm here. Again, he's beginning with this assumption of faith, writing as a prayer, meditating on the God that he already believes in. Here's the first quote. 
Let me discern your light. Again, talking to God here. Let me discern your light, whether it be from afar or from the depths. Teach me to seek you and reveal yourself to me as I seek. Because I can neither seek you if you do not teach me how, nor find you unless you reveal yourself. Let me seek you in desiring you. Let me desire you in seeking you. Let me find you in loving you. And let me love you in finding you. This idea of, I already believe you exist, but I want to understand, and I can't understand unless you illuminate my heart, unless you reveal yourself to me. Again, see the humility in his writings. He's not looking kind of at God under a microscope saying, let me teach everyone about God. He is standing with his hands open in prayer and saying, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to understand you. Reveal yourself to me that I may love you more, that I may desire you more. Next quote. I do not try, Lord, to attain to your lofty heights because my understanding is in no way equal to it. But I do desire to understand your truth a little, that truth, uh, that truth that my heart believes and loves. Again, he already believes it. He's not proving it to himself. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I do believe so that I may understand. For I believe this also, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Again, very uh, Augustine sounding. Uh, the goal, deeper uh, love, deeper desire, deeper devotion of God. So a summary of this proslogion, what will become the ontological argument. You guys are gonna love this. Uh, so he's not working up the ladder. Like I said, he's not working up the ladder of goodness like in the monologue on. Rather, he argues someone only has to have an idea of God in their head to see that he exists. Here's the first uh, section of the argument. Well then, Lord, you who give understanding to faith, grant me that I may understand as much as you see fit that you exist as we believe you to exist and that you, uh, and that you are what we believe you to be. Now we believe that you are something that which nothing greater can be thought. Or can it be that a thing of such nature does not exist since the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But surely when the same fool hears what I'm speaking about, namely something that which nothing greater can be thought, he understands what he hears and what he understands in his mind, uh, even if he does not understand that it actually exists. Let me break this down. Or do you guys get this? You're just like, move on. We understood that paragraph. Let me break this down for you. So again, notice his prayer. He's starting with belief. We believe you exist. And it's actually the fool, right? He's quoting Isaiah 52. It's the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. Right? There's no hints of atheism here. He's not post-enlightenment. It's the fool that doesn't believe in God, quoting the scriptures there. But, he says, even the fool can understand this, this saying that he's going to say over and over and over again, something that which nothing greater can be thought. So what he's simply saying is this. You have, all of us can think about something that is the greatest possible being that we could possibly contemplate. Right? The fool who says there is no God, who is denying God's existence, can at least think of God or can at least think of something where he can't think of anything better, something that is infinitely loving, infinitely holy, infinitely perfect. Right? You can at least have something of that in your mind where there's nothing better that you can think of. You've reached the heights of this great being. He exists in your mind. Right? Even the fool has to say, yes, I can at least think of God. And then he says this. So, so the fool has that in his mind. This idea of God, this guy, this idea of this infinite being. And he says this, and surely that than which nothing greater can be thought, there's that saying again, cannot exist in the mind alone. For if it exists solely in the mind, it can be thought to exist in reality also, which is greater. If then 
that with, with which nothing greater can be thought, exists in the mind of the lo- alone, then, or this same that which nothing greater cannot be thought is that than which something greater can be thought. You're all like, I'm following you, yes, perfectly. Which is obviously impossible, obviously Anselm, yes. Therefore, there is absolutely no doubt that something that which greater, can, something that which nothing greater can be thought exists both in the mind and in reality. Okay, there we go. Who needs a drink, right? Okay, so here's what he's saying. If you have this idea of God in your mind and you can't think of anything better, what's better for that just to exist in your mind or that God to exist in reality? That God to exist in reality is better. And so, therefore, he must exist in reality. You say, that doesn't really make sense. Okay, here's what he says next. If that God, which is perfectly loving, perfectly holy, he's, you can't think of anything greater, exists in your mind alone, that God doesn't have existence. Therefore, it's not the greatest thing you can think of because the greatest thing you could think of has existence. It exists. So you can't say, I'm thinking of God and he's just in my mind because if you're thinking of God, he must exist as well. Okay, ontological argument. Technically, you can't disprove it. You can you know, say, yeah, but I don't believe it, but you can't disprove it, right? Because if you're saying, I'm thinking of something that I can't think of anything better, we say, okay, well, that God exists. You say, no, he doesn't. Well, then you're not thinking because one step higher is that God actually existing. So let me use uh, Zach's example from his blog that kind of clears things up. If I say to you, you know, close your eyes and think of a unicorn, and you do. Imagine that you do. I'm not going to make you close your eyes, but imagine you do, and I say, open your eyes. You're welcome. I just gave you a unicorn. You would say, no, you didn't. Where is it? And I would say, I just gave it to you in your mind. And you would say, oh, well, that's kind of a cheap move. And I would say, exactly, because if a unicorn existed in reality, that's better than me just giving it to you in your mind. So you admit that something existing here in the real world is better than just in your brain. And Anselm says, aha, same with God, right? If you can imagine the best thing, something with which nothing greater can be thought in your mind, it must exist because existing in reality is better than something just existing in your mind. Revival's breaking out, I can see it, right? Yes, thank you, Lord. Okay, so that is the ontological argument. Yes, it is difficult work uh, to, think, to think through, but uh, that is uh, what's now called the ontological proof. We do use it now often to debate, you know, to make the atheist become a Christian. That is not his original, I mean, you can do that, fine, go for it, but that is not uh, Anselm's original intention. His intention, again, is worship. I put a quote here. This is the goal of his meditation. Again, as your brains are swirling, hear, hear Anselm's words of why he's going through this exercise of thinking deeply about this God that he already believes in. I pray, O oh God, that, you may, or that I may know you and love you, and that I may rejoice in you. I ask, Lord, as you counsel through your admirable counselor, may I receive what you promised through your truth, that my joy may be complete. God of truth, I ask that I may receive so that my joy may be complete. Until then, let my mind meditate on it, let my tongue speak of it, let my heart love it, let my mouth preach it, let, me hunger, or let my soul hunger for it, let my flesh thirst for it, my whole, being, uh, my whole being desired until I enter the joy of the Lord who is God, three in one, blessed and forever. Amen. You see that? 
What is his goal there? What is the end of his prayer? That is the last words of the proslogion. He wants to know his God. He wants to love his God. He wants his joy to be complete. And until that day comes in eternity, let my tongue speak of it. Let me preach of your glory. Let me think about it. Deepen my worship. Again, difficult theology is worth it. We live in the day where those are separated. You have your ivory tower thinkers who don't really love God, the Pharisees, and then you have your holy people who are just hugging Jesus all the time. And Anselm would say, those are not, yes, there are those two extremes, but that is not God's design. God's design is in the same way that you would want to know your spouse more by taking her on dates, learning more about the depths of her heart and things like that, or his heart, uh, if you're a lady. Uh, You would never say to your spouse, hey, I love you so much, don't teach me anything about you. Don't tell me what you're thinking ever. Don't tell me what you like and what you don't like. You would not know that person anymore. You would not love that person anymore. It's the same with God. You want to know and fall in love and have your heart set on fire, study, think deeply, do incredibly difficult work of studying your inexhaustible God and reap the reward of knowing him more. If God is infinitely good, if he is beauty, capital B, there is only one result of doing the difficult work and that is basking in his beauty, knowing him more, the one that we're gonna know for all eternity. That's what Anselm's goal is here. So again, if you wanna know more about the argument, If you didn't understand anything I just said, don't worry. Zach says it better and we have it recorded and written down. So there's two things of Zach saying this better than me that you can find online, unicorn blog and ontological argument in our uh, apologetics teaching. So, everybody with me? Anselm says those two things and the medieval world is like, more please, right? He's becoming very famous, uh, well-known. These are increasing his fame, but he's gonna stay in the school back for another 15 years until Lanfranc dies. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. Remember, he was taken away by William the Conqueror to uh, take the highest seat in England as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he dies at the age of 60. And so the most important uh, post in all of Europe is vacant. Uh, And so William the Conqueror calls Anselm. I want you to leave your school in Beck and you come fill this seat. You are the, 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 basically the head of the church in England. Uh, and so Anselm's 60, he's very old. Uh, he's basically the will of the Catholic church in England and he doesn't want to go. He does not want to go. He does end up going reluctantly, but he doesn't want to go because in their day, uh, in, in the 10th century, there's this fight, 10th, 11th century, something called the lay investiture. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot about, we talked about the corruption of the papacy uh, last week or two weeks ago, Jeff taught on it, uh, how there's this, uh, begins to be this fighting between the Pope and all the different kings over who's more powerful. And guess what? The Pope says, me, and the kings say, us, right? So the kings... They're doing this thing called lay investiture where they're saying, I want to appoint the bishops in my land. I want to appoint the priests in my land. Therefore, they'll be loyal to me, right? The church won't be this other power I have to deal with. Rather, I'll have the church on my side. And the Pope is saying, no, I want them loyal to me. So if you're stepping out of line, I can, you know, excommunicate you or something like that. So that's going on. And in Anselm's day, there's this big pushback from the church to stop kings from being able to appoint bishops, priests, things like that. So there's this struggle going on. And England in particular, because it's an island, there's 23 miles between the continent of Europe and England. They've always enjoyed this kind of privilege of saying, yeah, yeah, Rome, Pope, I'm going to disobey your orders. And what are you going to do about it? Because there's no cell phones for the Pope to call him and say, hey, I just told you to do this. And they say, I don't care. And they hang up on him, right? You have to send somebody to say it with their mouth. And that takes months because there's no bullet trains or planes either. So there's this, England is particularly a hotbed. And Anselm's like, man, if I go, it's gonna be real bad. But he goes 
and it was real bad. Uh, in fact, the archbishop after him, after he dies, is going to be killed uh, in the church uh, in, in Canterbury. But so Anselm goes and he basically spends the entire rest of his life, the end of his career, uh, in exile. He's exiled over and over and over again. Exile sounds a bit extreme. He goes and hangs out in Italy and in the mountains. And, but he's kicked out of you know, where he's uh, supposed to be serving, which is Italy. So his first exile, or uh, England. So his first exile is to Italy. He's kicked out because he's telling the king he needs to submit to the Pope. And like so many throughout church history, the darkest times of their life end up producing uh, the most influential works uh, that have shaped the Lord's church. For uh, there, there is, uh, we could look at person after person, whether it be Athanasius or whoever, the darkest periods of their life the Lord uses to bring about the most uh, benefit to uh, our Savior's church. And it's the same with Anselm. So he's kicked out, he's in Italy, and at this time he spends uh, writing his most famous work, Why God Became Man. Why God Became Man. So there's a picture of uh, Mary, who's taller than Joseph for some reason, and sweet baby Jesus, and a uh, donkey and bull looking at baby Jesus. So why God became man? He wants to meditate on the incarnation. There's three, uh, or up to Anselm's day, there's two primary views of atonement. Uh, the first is what we call ransom view, this idea that for us to be saved, we're captives to the devil. And so what the father's gonna do is he's going to pay the devil for us with his son's life. So he's gonna say, you know, devil, I know you got all these people. How about the son of God? That's a bit better. And the devil says, yes, it is. So he says, here, you could take him, you can kill him. I get all the people, but then aha, Jesus is raised from the dead and we get Jesus back too. So we trick the devil. He's foolish, right? He didn't think it through. That's the ransom view that was a, a, a held more in the early church. If you've seen the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's kind of what's portrayed, right? Edmund gets taken by the White Witch. And so Aslan said, you know, I'll step in his place and I'll die, but then he raises from the dead because, you know, the mice eat the cords around, all that fun stuff. Uh, and so that's kind of the view uh, that Lewis promotes. But Origen, Cyril of, or Cyril of Jerusalem, a couple of the early guys believe that. There's some problems with that view. You might have already discerned. One, kind of makes God deceptive. Two, it is uh, really not biblical. So, you know, it's a bigger problem. That's the first view. That will eventually, uh, Anselm will kind of say, let's kind of be done with this. This one's not really great. And the second one is the Christus Victor, this idea of victory atonement, that Jesus is the conquering king invading uh, the devil's domain and uh, defeating him, defeating the powers of evil and establishing this new relationship between God and the world and establishing this kingdom. He's the conquering king. That is biblical. That will stick around. And Anselm is going to begin this shift towards a third view that I would say has become the dominant view, especially within Protestantism, which is the satisfaction view, or what will eventually be substitutionary uh, atonement. So he wants to meditate on the incarnation. He's in Italy, he's got nothing to do, he's in exile. Uh, so he wants to meditate on the incarnation. And again, remember his methods, faith, seeking, understanding. He already believes in the incarnation, but he wants to think about it more. He wants to explore what he already believes with logic. Uh, so to understand this, before we dive into it, we have to know a little bit about the background of Anselm's day. Uh, and the social kind of structure of Europe in that day was something called feudalism. 
It's where there's this social agreement between lords and vassals or between you know, sovereigns and serfs and things like that where there's this agreement where uh, a lord or a sovereign over a specific region can expect certain things from their serfs, from their vassals. Right? They can expect uh, military service. They can expect taxation right, to keep everything running. They can expect loyalty. You're going to fight for me and not someone else. And they can expect hospitality. They can show up at your house and be like, hey, I'm your lord. Make me a sandwich. You know, kind of like mine and Jeff's relationship. It's like, go pick up my dry cleaning or you're fired. I'm like, okay, I guess I have to. You're my boss. Uh, but it's not really a one-way relationship. The uh, vassals, the serfs, on the other hand, can expect things from their lord. They can expect a safe environment. They can expect you to, or the Lord to give them land that they can work and, and make money from. You know, things like if you have kids and you die, the Lord will watch over them, will take care of them. So there's this, that's the social agreement of Anselm's day. Uh, but if that agreement is broken, if the Lord uh, fails to protect you or provide you land, you're allowed to go find another Lord. But if a vassal breaks uh, the vow, if they somehow don't pay their taxes or things like that, the Lord, the sovereign over the area, is entitled to retribution, right? It's all about honor. If you're honor, it's not as much like, you know, I'm upset with you, this cost me money. It's you've offended my honor, you little serf. I'm your Lord, you've offended my honor. And so uh, normally, instead of just, you know, killing the person or something like that, there, there would, the Lord would allow them to do something to restore the honor, so they could technically put them to the sword, that would kind of restore it, or uh, you could pay a little bit extra. You pay your normal taxes, and then you pay a little bit extra, and then the honor would be restored. I'm so sorry that I fought for this other Lord. Please take me back. Here's more money, and the Lord would say, okay, the honor's been restored, retribution has been made, and the relationship can be mended. So that's Anselm's day, and that is going to affect kind of how he sees this view of atonement as he's meditating on the incarnation. So here's what he's gonna say. God is the ultimate Lord, ultimate sovereign. He rules everything. We are his serfs, right? We are his people. We already, from the beginning, owe him everything. We owe him our lives. We owe him everything. He's our creator. We wouldn't exist without him, so we already owe him our lives, already owe him worship. And so we've sinned, and we have therefore infinitely offended the honor of God. So sin has much more to do with the magnitude of the offense than the amount of the offense. It's not, oh, I only sinned three times or I only sinned seven. It's you've sinned and offended his honor. It's, it's more the magnitude of the offense. So because we've sinned against a God who is infinitely holy, our sins are infinitely offensive. We have infinitely uh, offended his honor. So what is God, this ultimate Lord, to do? He could put us to the sword, or, you know, we as the vassals could make restitution, could make satisfaction for our offense. But here's the problem. We already owed him everything before we sinned. So we have nothing left to pay. We already owed him everything before we infinitely offended his honor. We can't pay more than what we owe because we already owe him everything. We already owed him before we sinned. So we're stuck. We have a payment that is too great for us to pay in order to mend this relationship, in order to satisfy God's dis, uh, dishonored honor. And so the only way, the only way for man to be saved and the offense against God to be satisfied is if God becomes man and pays it on man's behalf. God is the only one who can pay the infinite payment, right? No man can pay it. Even if we give our lives over, we already owed him our lives, even before we sinned. That doesn't make up for the payment. Only God can pay the infinite payment, and it must be paid by a man on man's behalf. 
only God becoming man could mend the relationship, could satisfy this uh, dishonored honor of our sovereign Lord. Here's what Anselm says. No one can pay except God and no one ought to pay except man. Therefore, it is necessary that a God-man should pay it. We owe God what we cannot pay and therefore Jesus Christ pays what we owe on our behalf. You see that? It's too great for us to pay. Even if we give over our lives, we already owed him our lives. How are we gonna pay the extra amount? Only God, only an infinite God could pay the infinite payment that we owe on our behalf. That's gonna bring about this new idea of atonement, of this satisfaction view. Only Jesus Christ, only the incarnate Lord could pay and satisfy this great offense on our behalf. So again, we, we see here all, all three of those major works. We've seen his uh, method on display. Faith, seeking, understanding, we've seen that. And here, uh, it's brought about searching out with logic and reason this incarnation that he already believes in brings about the primary view of atonement that we hold today, Christ as our substitute. This will eventually be reflected on for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries after of Christ as our Passover lamb, as our sacrifice, as our substitute. That is the prime, how, how do we talk about Jesus? Right? The cross, he's, he's taking it in my place. That comes from Anselm beginning to open up this way. Not the ransom view, the victory view we still have around. That's, that's a biblical idea. But Anselm brings about by this method of faith-seeking understanding this uh, new, in his day, idea of atonement. Christ is our substitute. In fact, Carl Truman, uh, the great uh, reform scholar, says every Western theologian that is written on atonement is influenced by Anselm. So he's going to bring this about. He's also going to reject, again, like I said earlier, the, this ransom view that Jesus pays the debt to the, or God pays the debt to the devil. It's God who is owed the payment, by the way. Jesus is satisfying the wrath of God, not tricking the devil. So that, that view kind of fades away. But victory and substitutionary atonement views are complementary, right? They're not opposed. We see both of those in the scriptures. Christ defeating uh, the devil, establishing his kingdom, and then him as our great substitute. So he has several other writings as well. Those are just by far the most famous. He writes on truth, on free will, on the fall of the devil, things like that. Uh, And then for basically the rest of his life, it's just a political mess. He's constantly being exiled, and then he dies uh, on April 21st, 1109, as again, a failed politician, but his uh, theological mind is one of the most influential, uh, really in the history of the church, especially in uh, the Middle Ages before Thomas Aquinas, who Zach talked about a few weeks ago. So what is his impact on the church as we close? Uh, Again, vastly increasing this idea of reason is a good thing. Reason, logic, is not this rival system that undoes faith or anything like that. Rather, it's a gift from God to actually deepen our faith. It's complementary. And then we see this major shifts in atonement. The emphasis shifts away from the incarnation to the cross, really the death of Christ as uh, what is paying uh, for our penalty. This emphasis on the power of sin is kind of switched more towards the guilt of sin. This idea of honor, righteousness, guilt, you, you've brought shame uh, through offending your high, high Lord, which again leads to that dominant view of Christ as our substitute. And then the ontological argument is famous. It's never necessarily widely adopted by the church. Uh, and again, he brings us this legacy of the head and the heart united using your mind that God has given you to set your heart on fire. That's something we saw in Augustine. That's something that Anselm uh, carries 
on as a great example for us to follow and why we as a church uh, love diving deep into the heady things because we believe it's gonna cause you to fall in love with your Lord. That's our ultimate goal, worship. What are we gonna be doing for all eternity? Knowing our Father, worshiping him, praising him because we'll learn more and more every single day, see his beauty every single day. So that's Anselm. We will move next week. You get me again. Again, sorry I was sick. So you have Jared twice in a row. So you can, uh, I'm sure the attendance will be less next week. But we'll start moving towards the Reformation uh, next week. But let me pray and then we'll have questions. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, Anselm. We thank you for servants who uh, wanted to know you more, wanted to love you, wanted to think deeply about you, and we pray that we would follow their lead, uh, that we would believe not because uh, it has uh, been proved us primarily. We don't put our hope ultimately in man's ability to prove things. We put our hope in you, but we pray that you would uh, teach us to explore with the gifts that you've given us who you are, that our hearts might uh, explode in worship, might be set on fire, that we might love you more, that we might walk in more rest, less anxiety, more peace, uh, and more trust in you, uh, that we might face the world boldly knowing that you have already brought the victory. And one day, Lord Jesus, you will come again and bring the ultimate victory. You will wipe away every tear. We will spend eternity with you. So we praise you and pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.